Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. One of the more interesting parts about mass networking or large-scale networking, or what I sometimes think of as metro networking, which is that high bandwidth around a certain region network, is that the market in that area is changing. We're going from being able to connect sites together to going together to connect them at high speed using Ethernet, which is where we are today, to a new network, which is what we just don't understand. The amount of bandwidth we need to bring into the metro is increasing exponentially. Customers want 100 gig. They want 400 gig. We have pipelines. We need our service providers to be able to put investments into the network, but the network needs to be more than just bandwidth. The, the, the service providers who operate these networks are looking for ways to maximize their return to themselves and make the investment case, but also to be able to go to customers and say, we've got a service for you that you want to consume. The challenge is is that the bandwidth is coming ahead of what we know customers want. And so we have this situation where the network needs to be more than it is, but we don't know where we're going. Now, in today's sponsored show with Juniper Networks, we're talking about this idea of the future of Metro. Where does Metro go from its current situation of Ethernet long haul, the combination of optical and IP routing, which is so sort of 1990s these days, how we go forward. And joining us today is Amit Bardwaj and Matt Nordland. They're going to be talking about the nature of what does this future metro look like? And then more importantly, what are the features of this future metro that we think we know right now? How do we build flexibility into these mass networks, these large scale networks in such a way that they're flexible enough for the unknown, for the use case that's coming into the market? All right, let's dive into this. So, Amit, let me throw the first question to you. What do we mean by metro networking in 2021? Oh, first of all, uh, Greg, so glad to be here. You know, when we talk about networking, I think we have to think about next five years. What are the big changes in the next five years? First, video, right? I mean, 82% uh, of the IP traffic will be video by 2022. And the video caching is getting distributed across into the metro. 5G, you know, we all know it's going to be huge. Mm. And 5G is just starting in, in its growth curve. About 54% of the mobile uh, data traffic will be 5G by 2025. And use the plane and the security gateways are again getting distributed in the metro. The most important one, I think, is the workloads. I mean, today, all the workloads are in the, in the cloud. And 30% of these workloads will reside in the edge cloud by 2025. This is all happening in the metro. I mean, if you compare to 2020, the metro traffic will be 4x in five years. Right. And not just that, things are going to be more dynamic. Uh, you know, uh, it's going to be more dynamic because you know, a lot of more traffic will be east-west and the services will be distributed across the metro. So, so there's a couple of things there. If you say 54% of mobile traffic will be 5G, does that mean it's more, like, is it more traffic than 4G? Like 4G is a lot of traffic now. Are you saying, or is it implicit that 5G would just consume more bandwidth or will it consume more services? So there's this discussion in 5G around the pop getting virtual instances. So we did a podcast recently uh, with Intel and they're talking about building VNFs and using the 5G RAN by turning it into software defined. Does that mean more bandwidth or does it mean a specific type of bandwidth? Does it mean low latency does it mean micro-segmentation? Does it mean different services? How, how does that break out? I, I've never quite understood how that breaks down. That's, that's a great way of looking at, it, at this, Greg. Because one, 5G itself brings more bandwidth. There's no doubt about that. 
It also brings you know law, much larger number of devices that can hook onto the network. But even when you look at the 5G architectures, I mean, how is 5G going to be delivered? You have front hall. Yeah. In the front hall, you you need low latency, and and the front hall you know uh, has to be done within the 10 kilometers of the cell site. And the bandwidth is massive there because you're you're talking about all the radio signals being carried on that Ethernet connection in the front hall. Uh, and a lot of that gets processed, the process right there where the DU is sitting, right? And then uh, from there, you know, there's another step with where the CU is sitting in the 5G. And then there's another step where the core is sitting for 5G. So the 5G itself is getting distributed across the metro and virtualized at the same time. So there's a couple of different types of traffic then. There's the user traffic, but there's also just the traffic that the site itself uses. So if we're delivering, so you said earlier that 82% of IP traffic will be video, a, th- a lot of that is going to come out of a content delivery network, which potentially might even be right out at the 5G pop to avoid backhaul bandwidth, right? So you get this, once you've got a virtual infrastructure in the 5G pop, then your routing gets very different because you might have a, a VRF, you know, or a segment running CDN traffic and another one, which is the user data and another one, which is the 5G pop uh, software platform itself. Yeah, once you virtualize something, once you have a virtual infrastructure out there, imagine what you can do with that, right? Uh, you talked about uh, using the user, uh, the plane function, uh, sorry, the data uh, control plane function for 5G, uh, but you can also do other virtual applications. You can host, you know, user applications, you know, all the workloads moving from the cloud, the CDNs uh, start to sit there because I mean, there's no point in putting CDNs, uh, you know, deep in the network when you already have that infrastructure that can host those CDNs. This, I mean, in the in the previous world, the business model was oh, take everything to the edge of the network, right? And everything was backhauled. The new model is you can backhaul that like you did like before, but you can also start to create new revenue streams because you can start to host uh, new applications like, for example, IoT um, applications, a lot of low latency applications right at the edge of the network. Yeah, so we're talking about things like LoRaR and NB-IoT networking standards, like LoRaR is designed to work off a button battery. You know that CR2020 battery, like a button? It's designed to work for 10 years off that and be constantly connected to the network. Or more correctly, it wakes up and pulls the network on a fraction of an instant. So these types of protocols need different networking capabilities? Yeah, you can think about this. uh, We'll come to the protocols. You can think about this like an Amazon Prime, right? I mean... You have your national distribution centers, you have your you know, regional distribution centers, and your closest distribution center might be a Whole Foods sitting a mile from your home. Depending on what the SLO objective is, that's where you know, the application is hosted. That's where the traffic uh, goes to, right? That's really the model we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, now obviously, there are a lot of uh, new things that the customers need to solve here, right? I mean, how do you manage the scope, scale, and complexity? Right. And how do you place uh, uh, flexible, flexibly place services in a rapid manner? And really, how do you steer traffic to where the service is provisioned, right? These are complex problems to solve in the new metro. Well, I think there's a couple of different problems here. I think there's two, well, there's two big problems with any network. One is the business case or the business process, and the other one is the technology. And I'll just touch on the business one quickly before we dive more into sort of the technology transition, and that is... For many service providers, there's like this um, need to upgrade the network to get more bandwidth. You know, we're, we're talking about 100 gig, 400 gig, 800 gig in the backhaul now and in the metro network. 
But at the same time, uh, there's no services yet to offer to a customer. I mean, if you're a enterprise engineer, you might be looking at SD-WAN, not at MPLS. And so the service providers have to find a new service offering that attracts customers to them, uh, that gives them something to offer clients in a way to say, look, instead of deploying SD-WAN, why don't you deploy this? This is better. There's That business case means that they've sort of got to invest in overhauling the infrastructure without actually having a product to come to market. Is that unreasonable or am I going too far? It's a reasonable uh, thing to say, what you just said, but I would take even one step before that. How do you even, uh, you know, deliver some of these services? Like, for example, 5G, we said, right? Uh, the 5G itself, uh, the business case for 5G works only when we start to virtualize the delivery uh, by, through the virtual infrastructure. So just to deliver the bandwidth also for 5G, you need that virtual infrastructure in the metro, right? The cable space is very similar where the CMTS, uh, which was the physical device, is now getting virtualized. So... Uh, even the delivering the basic broadband services requires that investment. And this gives, what, what it really gives service providers is the agility that they did not have before in delivering these services. Then you're right, the new applications, the new use cases. I mean, we know the, the big cloud guys, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, the Microsofts are already working on their cloud edge offerings with major service providers. So all of this is coming, right? I mean, the initial infrastructure, 100%, is going to be around, uh, you know, the the broadband, the the 5G. Yeah. And, and then you will see a lot more advanced use cases. Yeah, I, I think the – well, I think there's a couple of things going on there. 5G is – it's got lots of things it could be, but we don't actually know what it will be. And in previous uh, market transitions, the service providers would usually wait until the use case became clear and then invest – in what was a winning product, if that makes sense. So the path to 4G came through 1G, 2G, 3G, if you like, and it became clear that voice mattered less than data and it soon became clear that data mattered more than voice and then soon it became clear that actually the only thing that mattered was data. And so there's this evolution and this is where, and I think the lesson that I learned because I worked on 2G, 3G, 4G networks, at least for a little bit, was that that flexibility in that infrastructure was what led to success for those companies the ability to use more software and less hardware meant I can flex this product to meet a new customer product to, you know, stop relying on SMS billing and start relying on voice minutes. And then it became data, data bytes, right? And so forth. Is that the same sort of transition here? Uh, if you look at some of the, the mobile providers across the board, right? Uh, some of them have actually stated very well that they want to become a software company. Uh, so it's 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 a transition for service providers to to the new business models, uh, to do to, to the new uh, service delivery models, and, and and which basically means you know the underlying network, uh, which is what you call as the metro network, has to become that IP fabric that allows them to do this. Right? Yeah, I mean it has to be more fluid than static. Well, I mean let's give an example here, right? So from a technology point of view, there used to be the optical network or the DWDM network, and over there was the optical silo. And those people, um, you know, they were the the wizards with pointy hats who worried about power levels and fiber optic cable capabilities and all that sort of stuff. And what we're seeing now is that the latest range of products, including Juniper routers, now have optical interfaces by default. And you can actually plug the DWDM straight into your PTX series router, for example. That transition is substantial, but it also means flexible as well. The optical is definitely going through a big transition because, as you said, 
it's becoming basically a pluggable in the routers. And especially when it comes to the metro networks, this, this, is, a, this is a massive saving for the customers where you know, you, instead of putting a, a client optic on, on a both the size and a transponder, you can just remove all that infrastructure, just put the optic in the router and you're good to go. Mm. You, you can go 80 kilometers, you can go hundreds of kilometers, uh, it's, it's, and you can go at 100 gig or 400 gig in a standard way. You can remove all the complexity from the, from the network uh, itself. But that's a big change. That, that's, a big, that's like in the data center 10 years ago when we suddenly put the virtual switch inside the server. And all of a sudden, the edge of the network just poof, disappeared. The server and the, and the network, the physical network and the virtual network became, and it took a long time. Whereas in the case of DWDM, you no longer have a DWDM edge operated by the DWDM team. They have to work with the IP and vice versa. But the flexibility comes out of this in that the IP and PLS paths can now be mapped onto the optical paths. So the service providers now got the capability to be able to um, line up the business to deliver services much faster. Yeah, it's, it's not just delivering the services faster in this case, right? But also the big part of this is, you know, when you're creating new services, how do you assure them, right? And bringing assurance, service assurance uh, in a common infrastructure instead of, you know, two different parts, IP and optical, everything IP and optical is basically pluggable, the assurance becomes a lot more easier. Mm. Uh, and I think th this is where when you start to create new services and you don't know where the services are going to be placed because they could be placed right in the first hop from the customer or maybe two or three hops from the customer, then, then you still need to make sure that the service has SLOs, which could be bandwidth, which could be latency um, and, and combination of these things uh, are met. And, and, and you have to measure, constantly measure them because it's all about the experience for the customers. You know, the, the experience is now not just about uh, a network SLA. It's really like we're having this Zoom call. I mean, what if this Zoom call drops? Our experience was went really bad at that point, right? Yeah. This is what customers are measuring. Uh, that, that's what they wanted to see, that their applications are working to, to, to the SLOs that they want those applications to be working, right? That's, this is, I, I want to approach this tenderly or gently even, but one of the things that we found with SD-WAN uh, deployments with by enterprises is that they're often finding that the serve the provider networks aren't performing as they thought they were. So they would find that the performance on the guaranteed bandwidth on the the fixed line services from from service providers were often wrongly configured or not working stably or or predictably over time. Like the latency was bad, and that the vast majority would get traffic over the internet. Now, that's a massive disconnect. So if your SD-WAN is routing all your traffic over the internet path or the public WAN, if you like, then your private network has failed. And the challenge here, of course, is that the service provider doesn't know that the private path is broken because they don't or haven't up until now, at least, had the tools to monitor the delivered service to the customer. Okay, so um, I want to bring Matt into the discussion here because you are working for the Paragon Service Assurance Arm of Juniper. And the key thing here is that you've actually got products that get into this space and actually monitor the network and check that what's been delivered. Is that basically the idea? I think you're, you're upon something here, Greg. And first of all, great to be back on the show, Greg. Fantastic job you're doing. Keep up the good work. So uh, to, to your point there on, on monitoring the network, I, I would rather say that what we do with Paragon Active Assurance, which is the part I am responsible for, is that 
we help our customers to guarantee that all deliveries are assured. They are measured and on the data plane, so we know the customers know that at the point of at the time of delivery, the service really works, and that it works also constantly along the, the service lifetime. Mm. And I think that there is a a lot of discussion about this differentiation, the, the network quality, service quality, and I think we ha we have a a few categories here if you look at it from a sort of a thirty thousand foot view. If you look at service providers now in this new metro. They are, of course, trying to differentiate themselves using network quality to create new net revenue streams and to combat churn, to introduce new services in this. So it's, it's much more than just the, the, the metro network. It's, it's essentially a platform with distributed cloud computing and multi-edge computing. But the second part here is also the enterprises that expect service quality as they now, they are racing to digitize and transform their old processes and become much more productive. Uh, and they're expecting low latency in order to have their industrial applications to run smoothly. Well, I think it's I think the challenge here is that they can, they want to be able to deliver low latency services or guaranteed bandwidth services or jitter certain you know certain guarantees. And the challenge now is on them to prove that that's actually the case. It's not good enough for them to just say, "Oh yes, we're going to give you a network that meets those SLAs," and then wander off and come back in three years and say, here, press hard, sign up again. They're going to have to, I think, service providers perhaps for the first time have to be able to prove to customers that the network is performing as they promised it would. Yeah, as, as a customer to one of these network slices or network services, if you will, so that the quality has to, you have a, to have a certificate or a proof point that the, the delivery is guaranteed. And that the quality is also assured over the lifetime. So, so personally, I would never accept a, a bill that didn't correspond to what I actually got delivered. And I don't think any of you guys would either. <laughs> so, Ahmed, I want to come back to something. We talked before about how the optical network is doing one thing and the IP network was often configured independently. So the MPLS paths that you would normally tick across a metro network would be fixed. You'd manually configure them. They'd be distributed by BGP. The failover paths would be would be provisioned usually by software. But if you're going to bring the optical and the IP together, what do you do to make it more flexible? How do you weld the optical and the IP network together to make it this sort of flexible metro or this new metro idea? So let's talk about this concept uh, called network slicing. And Matt just briefly touched on that. Uh, what service providers, what, what, is, what is a service that the service providers would provide to the customers, right? The service providers is take the same network and, and provide a slice of a network to a customer, right? That slice might be point to point, that slice might be multi-point, right? And within that slice, you define the SLA. You can define latency SLA, bandwidth SLA. It could be just, or it could be just a best effort slice. Uh, and, and then you take that slice and you, you push that slice into the network you, in terms of, you know, mm. what is the topology of that slice, which means what are the endpoints, right? Uh, what is your, you know, how do you separate the traffic, which is your VPNs? How do you guarantee your resources, which is your QoS? And then simplify this slice orchestration for the network. Yeah. The second thing of that is you take that slice, um, which has been provisioned, have a single dashboard and tie it with active assurance, uh, which what, what Matt's talked about. And now you not only give a slice of a network to the customer, you're actually constantly monitoring that slice as a service. The optical piece, you know, when you, when you remember the optical, optical was, you know, you slice the fiber into multiple wavelengths, you no longer have to do that, right? 
the IP network will do the network slicing and it will use the stat muxing and it can offer all the different variations of the SLAs on top of that. We just remove that complexity from the architecture. So is this then the idea, this sort of future vision of the Metro network, is this the idea that you would have an SDN, you know, the software defined Metro, I guess, is part of this. You, We now have the software. We know that the software can operate the network at scale. Are we saying that you're going to unify the optical provisioning and the IP path provisioning and the MPLS provisioning into a unified platform? Is that fundamentally the goal here? What is the provisioning on the optical side, right? For for the metro network, which is generally mostly, you know, connected in rings, there are only two paths to go. So it's all about, you know, what the adjacencies of the, of the routers are. And, and once the, the optical light is turned on, the, the routers see each other, right? And you can you can put rodents in the middle if you really like uh, to yeah. be more jazzy, or you can do passive, you know, filters in the middle. Uh, it all depends how much money you want to spend, or you know, what kind of fiber topology you I mean, might have. That work is so manual. That idea of doing rodents and then monitoring the optical power and looking for the you know, oh, this signal's faded, you know, two dB over the last twelve months, and somebody's doing it. You know, the old days of doing a manual test run and then putting the data in a spreadsheet. And then going, oh, this circuit's dropped 2 dB over the last 12 months. That's a sign that the fiber optic in that path is degrading. We need to do something about it. And that, surely that's software operated by now or should be. Uh, I, you would think so. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem is not just about the software. It's all proprietary, right? If, if you, I mean, the whole technology is proprietary currently. I mean, one vendor's management system for Rodems doesn't work for other vendors' Rodems management system. We can simplify a lot of that stuff in the metro. I mean, I mean, if if the topology is ranks, the passive muxes work pretty well, yeah. and and the routers will converge. The routing will converge when there's a failure in the network. Even if the fiber is degrading, you can do things like FRR, and you can prefect FRR. Where you can detect these failures, you know, even before the failures actually happen. So I guess this comes back to the Paragon Service Assurance, where you're actually monitoring the end to end. Then, so. Where there are situ like DWDM networks are really difficult to change because it often involves uh, what I like to think of as mystical science magic because DWDM is quite often just mystical science magic. And really what you want to be able to do is measure the customer experience and then go, oh, there's a problem. And then people like Matt's come along and go, yeah, there's a problem and it's on this path and with this is what the measured customer experience is before the customer's ringing you up and complaining about it. Is that the idea, Matt's? Yes, I think that, that yeah, that's definitely right. So, so I think network quality is, is all about what's going on at, at the data plane. So although it's super important that the, the fiber optical performance is within the expected dB ranges and mm. attenuations, what really matters for the end users is what's going on on the data plane. And that's uh, all about uh, one-way latencies. Can I get my achievable throughput? I think what we are looking at and what we think is much more important now than ever before is that to move away from looking at the devices and the health of the infrastructure and look at what is the KPIs and the S service level objectives metrics that we can deliver to our customers. So I guess the thing is if we're doing this active assurance monitoring, now I've only talked about this for a moment, an assurance monitoring point of view in that there's a path in the network. But I think one of the things we talked about in the show, we did a couple of a couple of months ago now, I think, is it so soon, was we talked about this idea that there would be automated provisioning and then you would do automated testing. Is that a part of this as well? 
That is definitely so. So I can definitely recommend the, the audience to to navigate to to have a, have a networking episode five six two, where two of my colleagues, Jonas Krogel and Peter Weinberger, um, have a deep dive on Paragon automation portfolio. But but in a nutshell, what we are targeting with, with the with the active part here is to augment just the naive automation of, of the networks where you push configurations down into the network, but also tie that tightly into testing and measuring the data plane at the same time. So you can think of how you do when you do code. You write code, you commit changes to the repository, and then you do an automated test. Oh, you are riding one of my favorite unicorns. Oh, <laughs> I did. <laughs> I <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> see, the lack of this, this lack of data, this lack of visibility has been at the heart of what we get wrong. The idea I think that you're promoting is I make a configuration change and then I test it yeah. to say, is the truth that I thought I was creating the actual truth? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a super obvious. And then you can answer questions like, okay, what's my one-way delay now for my ultra-low latency service? Is it lower than three milliseconds as I promised to my customers? Can my IoT services, can they really connect to all the applications and microservices that you might have distributed across edge clouds and public clouds? There are so many questions now that you can answer that you couldn't in the past when you relied on just device-centric uh, metrics like alerts, logs, and, and all the, the, the traditional stuff. Mm. So, And I think there's two parts to the service assurance too, is obviously there's the as provision part, but it's also the sustained mm. operation. Yeah. If If I have these devices in the network performing tests from the customer experience, if the service degrades over time, whether because the optical network degrades and, and packet loss becomes an issue or because something in the routed path gets overloaded, a router starts to reach its peak load or a path reaches peak load or whatever it is, you're, you're going to know about it because you're monitoring for that, but independently of the network, right? Yeah. And I think uh, what, what makes Juniper's solutions extremely interesting is that you can now correlate also the, the, the traditional metrics from devices like you're into now the, the, the device um, counters like CPU load, interface load, utilization in various kinds and correlate that with, with the data plane metrics. So you can start figuring out where and where are the issues and why are they happening. So Emmett, I think one of the questions I have in the back of my mind here is we have service provider networks today are, that are all based around MPLS and technologies like EVPN and segment routing. If I was looking at a future metro and the evolution of the metro network, are those protocols still there? Are we changing everything or just um, evolving those technologies? You know, when we look at uh, the protocols in the network, honestly, majority of the metro networks today are still layer two. I mean, uh, we love the networks to migrate to EVPN and segment routing. We are not there yet in majority of the, uh, of the metro networks today. And that's why these networks are very static. As we go into, this, into, the, into the new metro, uh, we do believe that EVPN, segment routing, uh, flex algo, these protocols um, play a huge part because these protocols allow us to provision services anywhere in the network. They allow us to do, you know, uh, traffic steering for the, for the traffic to wherever the service is being delivered. So, so these these play a big role. So this means that the service providers don't actually have to change the heart of what their technology is. They have to go. I think what you're what we're saying here is that the approach to operation of them has to change. They have to be able to configure these more often. 
adapt them more often, but also to add things like timing and synchronization, um, service-aware distributed services, uh, and more flexible traffic steering. So the idea is, is that I should be able to change the dynamic pathing across the network all the time, not just once a month you do a retuning or once every quarter you do a retuning of the network. You're moving to a much more adaptive, ongoing, you know, the paths get steered according to whatever. That's the thrust of the technology transition. Yes, that is the thrust. And and the, the transition is not just coming in the transport network, right? Even from the 5G perspective, where 5G is going to create the network slices for multiple different 5G use cases, then that 5G slice has to be tied into the transport slice because the transport slice also needs to meet, meet the same SLOs. Then the same slice has to be tied into the 5G core. So in the end, you're going to see this, this slice end-to-end -end going from 5G perspective. You're also going to see the similar slice on the broadband side because it doesn't matter where the customer's coming from. The customer might be coming from radio, uh, a wireless, or might be coming from broadband. They always want the same experience, right? Yeah. So, so this, so now you, you gotta deliver the same experience depending on where the customer is coming from. That really makes it a lot more dynamic than static uh, before uh, when we talk about the metro networks. I think there's a, well, I think there's a few things in there. One is this idea that constant flexibility, automated operations, and the ability to change according to what's underneath. Because you, what you want to be able to do is to change your DWDM at any time. If you're going to upgrade from 10 gig DWDM to 100 gig to 400 gig in the next five years. And that is not an unreasonable assumption, I don't think. Do you agree? Not at all. And not an unreasonable assumption at all, because I think the 100 gig is now. Uh, in, in fact, I mean, with some of the, the new innovations that we bring to the table, same port can be used for 100 gig DWDM or 400 gig DWDM. You can light it 400 gig day one. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> not have bandwidth be a problem for quite some time. Okay. And this is in the network equipment that we have today. So 400 gig is actually here in DWDM gear and in IP routing equipment, right? Yes. 400 gig is here. I mean, right. uh, the 400 gig DWDM in routing is here now. Yeah. Just in case people didn't know, because it's not, it hasn't gone really loud yet. It's sort of at that stage where people who know, know. And the people who are in enterprises, and I mean, a lot of people who listen to Packet Pushes, are enterprise IT customers, right? And if you're an enterprise IT person listening to this, you should be asking questions of your service provider to say, is your network using this sort of technology? I, I don't, well, that's what I think. What are your thoughts? Oh, you know, you, you touched up a good point because let's say you have, in, in, in a metro network, you have two different networks and there is a fiber card and the DWDM network is now routing you through the long path. How do you even tell that to the IP network at all, right? Mm -hmm. The underlying network DWDM could be doing is completely different from what the overall SLO objective is. If you really don't need that, I, mean, I had a few conversations with the customers recently and everybody said, oh, we can do that. And, and, and a lot of these customers have switched uh, the RFPs to say, you know, I really don't need that extra layer in the network. I can just put this in the routing because it just simplifies my operations. I know what's happening. Um, in the network, I'm I'm getting a lot more deterministic, and and I can turn up another port on the router. I get another 400 gig wavelength. I can turn another port on the router. I can turn another another 400 gig wavelength. So you can build a terabit capacity metro network all by using these pluggables. So, but just to make that clear, that's not something that we can actually easily do today. If you want to change the DWDM to upgrade it from you know one gig to 10 gig to 40 gig. 
that's usually a major piece of work and often disruptive. Or yes, that's hard, right. Right. I mean, you, you pretty much have to do any RFP for that. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Here you can just turn. And just think about that from a business, just think about that from a business point of view. You want to upgrade from 10 gig to 40 gig. You basically have to go and call for an RFP and go through a buying cycle just to do that. That's not the way it's going to, that's not the, that's not going to be a, a successful telco if you stay with that model, surely. Absolutely. Same same model goes from the data center, right? The, the data center interconnect is also moving into this direction. And now you start to see volume, right? Uh, the, the, the volume going to ZR and ZR plus plug, pluggables, that economics drives the cost also equation also down. Right. So the bandwidth cost per bit starts to drop uh, with, with this model. And other thing I want to talk about, you know, when we talk about, you know, scale is, other than DWDM is, you know, from an architectural standpoint, uh, we also start to see architectures, new architectures, right? Uh, we start to see uh, new speeds and feeds, port speeds and feeds. Mm. But then, uh, is it a scale-up architecture or a scale-out architecture? And in many cases, we think the customers will use both because depending on what the fiber topologies are, the customers can make scale-up and scale-out architectures. And we've seen this coming, some of these concepts coming from the cloud, like the data centers, where they use yep. do a lot of scale-out. Um, in the metro networks, also we believe as you start to put the compute infrastructures, uh, right? That's so. This is a really interesting discussion. So what you're talking about here is scale up, which is the chassis-based architectures. So that's when your hardware is a chassis, and you have the line cards, and you, you every time you load a new you know blade into it, it gets faster or bigger, or, or it's embiggened in some way. But there's also an emerging class of devices which is scale out, which uses a number of one RU devices and a coherent service plane to be able to get to multi-terabit routing performance. Yes, and, and if you uh, think about some use cases, like for example, front hall. In, in a front hall use case, there are literally no hops between your uh, DU and, and the cell side uh, gateway. That's where the scale out starts to uh, make sense because you can layer your uh, scale out one RU devices in the in the pop, and your cell side routers are one hop away from there, right? So, and and then you, the virtual infrastructure in that uh, pop basically starts to scale out. From, from these routers. But then these are transitions. So what you're saying is there's going to be some use cases where the scale up or the chassis-based architectures or the big heavy routers, you know, rack-sized routers with all of the things in them, they're going to continue for some use cases. But there is an emerging use case for the scale out, which is this ECMP 1RU type, you know, with a coherent software plane where customers might want that. Now, the challenge here, of course, is when you've got those two types, you've now got to orchestrate them together. You've got to start stitching that together to deliver the same service to a customer. So it actually makes the problem, uh, the service delivery problem worse in a way at the same time while improving the device problem in some cases. Yeah, yes and no, because you know, in, in the metro networks, we've always dealt with different topologies. So I, I see a scale up and a scale out not as a router, big fixed form factor versus a chassis. It's more like a topology. Right. Uh, what's the right topology for you uh, in, in in the metro network? And even, even for example, in a scale out approach, I can use big chassis uh, for that matter uh, because I I have a, uh, you know, what do you call as a uh, hub and spoke topology, right? Yeah. But my operational model, uh, I like uh, the routers because, you know, it it gives me, you know, generational uh, upgrades and I don't have to change infrastructure that often. So, so, so I can do the same thing. So I think not to make the problem too complex, it's, it's, it's more about saying, if I have to deliver, deliver large number of ports, speeds and feeds, right? 
-hmm. I, I want all these options. I want fixed form factor options. I want chassis based options. And then, so I have the flexibility of, you know, taking different metros from as, for, as a customer, uh, as, a, as an operator and pick the right scenarios for different locations. Well, one of the things that I discovered in Metro networking is that a lot of device selection is actually determined by where your fiber is. And, you know, at $500 to $1,000 a, a mile or a kilometer to dig it up and replace it, it's not like you can actually change that. And so sometimes your device architecture is driven by your as installed fiber infrastructure. And that's just the way it is, right? That is just the way it is, exactly. Yeah. It, it's, it's invariant. So it comes back to it. But it, I think it continues to come around to how – I think the key differentiator here for Juniper is a couple of different things, and I'd like to talk on how Juniper could see its way to bring the future metro through. And if you're an enterprise customer, you should be thinking about how – or I would like to think that there's an answer here for you about how your service provider is going to give you a service in the future, right? And so I think the question is in two parts. How does a – service provider orchestrate all these pieces together into something meaningful and then how does that this service assurance piece that we've talked about with the paragon portfolio the active assurance how did this how does this all come together yeah i want to start saying the vision here is of, of a metro to deliver services anywhere right that's that's very basically one line vision if i can say that hey let me try and break that down i think what you're trying to say the metro anywhere that actually means that today when you have 100 gig in the core or 400 gig in the core, that you should be able to bring Metro on-premises. Whereas today you go from core to the middle to the edge to the customer. I think what you're saying is it just needs to be straight to the edge. Yeah. Edge, in fact, I would say edge is moving into the Metro. Metro right. is the new edge now, uh, going mm. forward. So the core is kind of going away in a sense, like the, the idea that the core is this sacrosanct never touched by customer-facing you know, and then you're saying that the edge of the metro just finishes on the customer premises going forward. It's, no, core is not going away because, you know, you can't big bring every service to the metro either. <laughs> like we said, right, 30% yeah. of the workloads will be in the edge cloud. The 70% would still be sitting in, in the large uh, data centers. So, so core is going to be always be there because, I mean, we just can't put everything everywhere. But you, you can start putting some strategic aspects in, in the metro, right? We talked about video. We talked about, you know, the service delivery, virtualization of a lot of service deliveries and, and the low latency use cases. So it's going to be, and that's, that's the monetization model in the end for uh, the operators is that everything that's sitting in the metro actually is monetizable because you're offering an SLA that's yeah. not over the top. Everything that's sitting in, let's say, big data centers goes over the internet. It's not monetizable. That's over the top. Right. Well, that's a key thing for service providers is they have to be able to bring a service that they can charge the customer for and the customer has to want it, right? So they have to find some way of offering their network as a product that customers want. And with SD-WAN, it's no longer enough to just say, I've got a service. You actually have to offer something value added to that. And a part of that could be uh, like I've seen research suggesting that metro traffic will grow four times in the next five years. So if you've got 100 gig today, it'll be 400 gig by 2025, 2026 sort of thing. But increasingly, because of technologies like SD-WAN and because of CDNs, it's more often going to stay in the metro. It's not going to go off into the backhaul of the internet. So the metro networks need to change in a whole bunch of ways. It's not all about uplink out of the site to where the data centers are located remotely. It's also about what happens inside the metro network itself, east-west, if you look. 
Yep. I mean, the good analogy, uh, I would say, is like if you looked at the combustion engine cars, right? You looked and inside the engine, you could tell what the business model of the customer was. And when you look at the EV, that hood is that hood is empty, right? The differentiation is, is the batteries and the software. In the same way, the metro networks, as the edge moves into the metro, uh, the differentiation for the service providers will be really, you know, lying across the metro where the services are being delivered and the soft software and automation on top of that. I think that's where the model starts to go towards, mm. you know, um, I'm going to be a lot more dynamic uh, in terms of the service delivery than I, I was. And, and that's where I can create new new offerings and, and uh, be more agile uh, in, in my offerings. I think the key for me, like I am much more in the enterprise side than the telco side. And I think the key for me is that if service providers want to offer me a service and then offer me the visibility into it to say it's meeting these guidelines, the tools that Matt's laid out in the Paragon Service Assurance, I'm going to monitor it. I'm going to show you the real-time traffic performance across this service that I'm selling you. That seems to me like a big change. And it also means that the service provider is keeping themselves honest because they have to commit to keeping that service going inside of the SLA and they're actually going to monitor it for the first time. Yeah, so, so I, th I think you're right there, Greg. So if I was an enterprise, I would ask my service provider, can, we please, can you please show me a birth certificate? I have now subscribed to this new service, a fantastic service with all these um, fantastic KPIs. Can mm. you show me a proof point? So I'm convinced that the time of delivery, it really works. I don't, I don't have the time to struggle with, with, with this later on. And then, of course, <laughs> well, as long as I consume the service, I would like to have that visibility, right. ideally, in real time. Do you think they will? So let, let's just take, let, let me just put my Thomas, doubting Thomas hat on for a minute and say service providers have never tested their networks before. They really, the majority of them just sort of provision and go, there you go, <laughs> all done. The MPLS configuration is good. The cost is configured. Yep, yep done. Dust the hands and walk away. And I, what I want to see is this closed loop automation where a telco provisions and then runs a test and then hands a certificate of health to the customer. That is essentially life cycle assurance. So yeah. You go all across the life cycle from the turn up phase to the operational phase and you, you even collaborate in, in case something goes sideways. If you have a situation which requires collaboration, so we, we didn't touch too much on that in our previous discussion here now, but there are many parts in a, in a metro network that are actually unmanaged. You could have lost mile. If you look at it from an operator's point of view, you have lost mile connectivity. You might have microwave links. You might have, have uh, parts that you cannot really have visibility into by just looking into the device. So the only way there is to, to, to send traffic on the data plane just like an end user and have that real-time visibility is something that I would, I would really like to have as, as an enterprise user. I want, I want that assurance. I actually want a telcos to say, like, I, I think that for many of us, we've lost um, a certain amount of trust in our telcos. We trust them to keep the path up, but we don't mm -hmm. necessarily to keep it, to keep the path operating optimally. And, uh, and this is part of the reason why the internet has been so successful is it's not particularly optimal and it's not particularly, but it does work well enough. Mm -hmm. uh, if the telcos are going to have a product that is attractive to customers. Really, the differentiation is a much higher level of guarantee. And to do that, they're going to have to prove it, perhaps. And that, I don't know, Ahmed, is that the future of Metro? Or is it just really all the other things that we talked about as well? Or does it boil down to one or two things? The proof is, as they say, always in the pudding, right? Uh, when, when you offer new services uh, as, a, as an operator, 
you, you have to prove that those services are working as defined. And I think this is the, the whole life cycle of the services that, I mean, creation of the service and then provisioning of the service and, and then constantly yeah. monitoring that service and assurance. Because it's interesting because this is what's happening in the data center now. We're doing closed loop automation. Uh, we're also doing open loop automation. So that is, you know, we went through the path of configuring the network and it doing a thing and then you push it in there and then you hope it works. That's open loop, right? Closed loop is when you actually then start running testing validation. And a lot of that is done with this uh, integrated network and testing. So some car, a lot of cloud providers are doing packet tagging and proprietary frame formats to track applications across the network to know if something's happening. Others are doing it in the overlay in the virtual switch. There's a whole bunch of ways to do this, this closed loop automation to know that I'm doing this and I'm testing it. And there's even companies out there who are doing it all in modeling as well, like external software versions to be able to model the change before it gets deployed to the network. But I, I'm still a bit, well, maybe I'm a bit old fashioned in a sense, but I believe that this idea of you do something and then you test it against some criteria. Like I promised this customer hundred megabits per second with a 25 millisecond delay and a, and a jitter of sub five milliseconds. And then I test it, right? And if it meets those criteria, then whatever I did works. And then I repeatedly test that every day going forward from now to oblivion to make sure I'm meeting my SLA. I think that's that's a new way of operating a metro network that that could change the the perception of it. Yeah, and, and I think to add to that also, Greg, is that all these devices will be changed so much more frequently now than in the past. In the past, you could do that test once in the beginning, and then the network was so static, so it essentially worked for, for the next six or 12 months. But now every time the network is touched by another, for another reason or for, to configure another service, there is an increased risk of breaking something because the configuration is no longer optimal. It will not deliver the SLAs that are expected. So testing this is also a good motivation to ensure nothing breaks when you touch the network. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, on top of that, if you're converging the network, right, your, your, your mobile, your residential, your business, uh, all is sitting on one network because you can't afford to invest in three different networks. Uh, this becomes even more important because you can't, you don't want to disrupt your business customers because the residential customer is, you know, starting to play a 3D video game. So that SLA has to be constantly monitored and delivered. Yeah. I think the interesting part here too is that this is all here. This isn't a pie in the sky. Like all of the pieces for this, you know, the, the contrail evolution and the automation of the service provider, the move to APIs and software-operated networks, the emergence of Juniper in the telemetry. Like Juniper was one of the first router companies to talk about using the router as a telemetry node and streaming telemetry off the, the Junos devices. And the addition of the Paragon Assurance through the NetWarens acquisition closes that loop. So now it's, you've got all the pieces, you've got the devices, you've got the IP edge. There's a whole lot of evolution around MPLS and EVPN and segment routing that stitches all of this together in the protocol layer. And then above it in the software layer, Juniper's got a whole portfolio of products, uh, Northstar and so forth, that do all this together. So really, this isn't a pie in the sky. I, this is more of a, I, I want to say it's an evolution of what we have to a mature stage market. Is that unreasonable, Emmett? Are you going to tell me that I'm wrong? You're, you're pretty much getting there, Craig. Uh, <laughs> the the Par Paragon automation, uh, what we announced, is basically our solution for 
uh, uh, you know, solving all these automation problems, right? And and the, and the tools in Paragon Automation are quite mature. Uh, and and Net Netrons, which is now Paragon Insights, it, uh, is part of part of that. So Paragon Active Assurance is part of that. We are going to bring a lot of new capabilities, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the portfolio. Um, so I'm going to say to everybody here that just see, uh, just look for Juniper, go to juniperto.net mid of April. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to see lot many many new announcements uh, for the new metro. You will also see what we're calling the new metro, and hopefully what we all discussed today uh, leads into uh, you know some of those concepts lead into you know what we're going to deliver, and and you will see that in the in, in mid of April. So I would definitely invite the audience to uh, go to juniper.net uh, to to see some of the new capabilities that we're bringing to the table. So I think we've reached the end of today and we're sort of painted the vision that there's a new wave coming of new wave of change coming into the service networks around the Metro network, especially your Metro Ethernet, right? And the idea is, is that partly driven by the bandwidth change and partly because there's a business case change, there's a lot more happening here. Now, if you want more information about this, go and bother your uh, Juniper sales rep, reach out to your sales account manager team or your resellers and particularly ask them about the Paragon Assurance Manager the Paragon Insights and the Paragon Pathfinder. And you can get into this whole portfolio about finding out what it's like to do service delivery in your Metro network. If you're an enterprise customer, you could start getting interested in this by going to your service provider and asking them questions about how they're going to be more flexible and more capable in their delivery. And watch out for mid-April. Juniper's got a big announcement coming around this idea of the new Metro and they're going to be talking about a group of technologies and a new strategy about how this sort of vision can be delivered. A little bit of what we talked about today was a little bit vague and a little bit sort of pointing in the direction of where we want to go. But this is going to crystallize in mid-April. So make sure you watch out for that announcement where you can get more information. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us here at the Packet Pushes today. Thanks to Juniper for sponsoring today's show and supporting us because without them, we couldn't be here. Thanks to Amit Badwaj, who's the Senior Director of Product Manager at Juniper Networks. Mats Nordland, who is a Senior Director of Product Management in the Juniper Assurance team. And as always, remember that Packet Pushes is here for you. We have dozens, hundreds of shows on this technology that you could go and listen to at packetpushes.net. You can subscribe to the show anywhere that you like. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Overcast. And send us feedback. If you've got questions about the show or if you want to ask us a question or get us to contact Juniper on your behalf, packetpushes.net slash FU for follow up. Don't hesitate to give us your FU at any time. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.